Hey, everybody. This is Frankie from the Breakpoint Podcast. We want to thank you all for tuning in to Marcus and I discussing our love and passion for the game of tennis. Your engagement and support goes a long way to helping this podcast continue to grow. Please be sure to give us a follow, rate our podcast on our social channels, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, or any other place that you get your podcasts. And on social media, Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast 7, Twitter at Breakpoint Pod 7, LinkedIn, and of course, our website, podpage.com forward slash break dash point dash podcast. Remember to subscribe to our podcast so you're the first to know when there's a new episode drop and more people like you can find our podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Breakpoint Podcast, starring myself, Frankie, and returning as the official slash unofficial guest co-host of Breakpoint Podcast, your favorite, Arabelle Chaffe. It's a pleasure to be back, Frankie, and an honor. Thank you for having me. Uh, The honor is ours, Arabelle. And... Because this is an Arabelle episode, we will be talking about Arabelle's favorite tennis player, the one and only Novak Djokovic, who ends up winning Paris Barcy, um, basically the signature event post US Open, pre ATP Tour finals, um, in pretty convincing fashion. Goes throughout the draw, doesn't really even seem to sweat. And Arabelle. As much as things change, they seem to stay the same. Novak's the king. Tell us what you think. Right. Uh, The things which are certain in life, death taxes, and Novak Djokovic is year-end number one. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, after Wimbledon, I think Nike said something like, we're in the Alcaraz era now, and Novak clearly took it personally. Uh, He's since won three titles, Cincinnati, U.S. Open, and Paris. Um, he's pretty much clinched the, the year-end number one and uh, surpassed Alcaraz in doing it. So, I mean, I think what impressed me the most, and um, it's not just that he's, I mean, it's that he's 36 years old, but it's that he's able to now manage his schedule and his body in a way that he can peak at the most important tournaments. And he really, because he's doing such a limited schedule, he needs to win the Grand Slams to maintain his ranking. And he needs to be able to, you know, peak at basically the Paris Masters in case he's like a little bit behind someone like an Alcaraz who's been playing more. And, you know, that's literally what he did. Won three out of four majors at the one that he didn't win. He was in the final playing five sets. And now with, you know, a few weeks to spare at the end of the season, having played no tournaments other than Davis Cup since the U.S. Open, he comes in cold and, and just wins his Paris Masters, beating some really amazing players on the way. So kudos to Novak. As you said, he is still the king. Yeah, I think, Arabo, you just said a really great point. You know, this year for Novak in many ways is actually closer to winning a Grand Slam, like a calendar year Grand Slam, than when he was actually going for it that year with Medvedev when he had won 27 straight matches. Because ultimately, he ends up being now one set away. I mean, we're talking about two games away, really, from completing the Grand Slam at this point. 
And it's just a really incredible year for him where despite the clear come up of, you know, a Carlos Alcaraz and not playing as world number one for most of the year, by the way, um, he's able to win all of these titles like pretty convincingly. Um, you know, and, and Wimbledon being the one that he dropped, I think is by far the biggest surprise of the year, but, uh, still, this is a huge win for Djokovic. Um, I think that the Paris masters will really be something that he's going to be able to have a stranglehold on for as long as he's willing to play it really just because his serve has just gotten so good at this point that an indoor surface is really going to be pretty suitable for him. And, you know, he, he's going to have a lot of success. I mean, he's just really going to have a lot of success. Um, I mean, the only really challenge that he faced this tournament to my memory was that that was that quarterfinal around a 16 against Holger Runa, where he ends up dropping a set, but then, you know, still ends up closing it out. So, you know, it's just more of the same from Novak. This guy's a phenomenon. We'll see if he ends up winning the ATP finals. Um, I mean, if he wins the ATP finals, I mean, I, I think you could argue in some ways this is his greatest season ever. Um, and we'll have that discussion sort of at the, you know, the end of the year. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Novak's just, he's amazing. He is, he is amazing. But, um, what else did you sort of take away from, uh, oh, wait, before we jump into the rest of the tournament, I forgot about this bullet point that you wrote about Benny Shelton. Okay. I... I will not delve in the interest of time. I will not delve into my opinion about Ben Shelton. I said it on previous episodes. We all know how highly I think of him. Arabelle, why don't you just give us a little bit of a download on your thoughts and then we'll speak about the rest of Paris. Sure. I mean, I really yo-yoed on Ben Shelton. So um, at the beginning of the U S open, I went to see him playing Dominic team and I sort of fell in love. I thought he was super cute. I thought his serve was explosive um, I loved his energy, and it seemed to me that he did, despite um, despite being such a flashy player and having this college energy, it seemed to me at first that that he was still humble and um, uh, and appreciative of the moment. But I, you know, in the match against Novak, I ended up taking Novak's side. I thought. Um, Ben was being a little bit too obnoxious with some of the celebrations. And I thought like, you know, if you dish it, you have to be able to take it that you can't be all mad that Novak is now hanging up the phone on you. Um, and I just thought he seemed like he was being a little bit cocky, um, a little bit too college but I've since calmed down a little. I've since realized, I mean, first of all, as you guys mentioned on the other podcast, he has like recognized that, even though maybe the intent of the celebration wasn't to diss anyone that by hanging up the phone in, in addition to just dialing it, he may have been like sending the wrong message. And it seems like he stopped doing that. Um, and while he's still super energetic and having these like loud celebrations on the court, I think it does seem like he is trying to be mindful of like respecting the other player. And I totally agree that like we shouldn't, try to overly sanitize tennis. You know, we need some of this sort of like basketball college type of energy to, to keep the fans engaged. And lastly, I think this was another point you made earlier 
I, I do kind of agree that like Ben is his best when he's super confident, when he's kind of doing things his way. So, you know, for him to continue to be successful, I wouldn't want uh, him, him to tone down like the elements that like give him the confidence to do the big things in the big moments. Uh, Arabelle, I have to tell you, I think that's a great take. I think that's all a great take. Um, I think, I think that's, yeah, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think Ben is definitely cocky. I mean, there's no denying that he's a hundred percent cocky. Um, and I think that he's sort of recognized a little bit that he might need to tone it down in order to not make enemies of people on the tour, because that's just generally not a super great strategy. Um, and yeah, I, I think Ben is best when he's confident. I think he's best, you know, in that sort of like fun role. And um, yeah, I just, I think he's great for tennis. And I, I do, but I agree with your criticism. I think those are all totally fair and totally uh, true. So uh, could not agree more there. Um, the player who I next wanted to sort of talk about when it comes to um, the Paris Barcy Masters is Grigor Dimitrov, who is somebody that, like, I personally think might be the most underrated player of the past, like, 10 to 15 years. Because he's somebody that, like, never really comes to mind when you think about the great players of this generation, but has low-key, like, put himself in a position to almost win or win, like, pretty big tournaments like this is constantly in the mix. Like when he's fully healthy and that's something we'll dive into is as good as almost anyone, it seems like, but you know, his health has just sort of let him down. And I think he's just like one of these guys that is just overlooked, but is a really, really good player. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think Grigor Dimitrov is a case of pure talent and pure elegance. People did used to call him a uh, baby fed for that reason. But um, I think there's kind of like two reasons that he didn't pan out. Uh, I actually met Grigor Dimitrov um, in 2020. He was like renting a house in Great Neck and I, I ended up meeting him. Super nice guy, extremely humble, you know, despite being super handsome and this like amazing athlete, he's a really down to earth, sweet guy. So I felt for him when he was crying at the bench, having lost to Novak. But at the same time, I will say I also met his coach on that occasion. And I said something along the lines of like, I'm rooting for Grigor to win this year. And he's like, it's not going to happen. I'm like, what do you mean you're his coach? He's like, well, he doesn't practice enough. Um so, I mean, Grigor, I don't think it, like, necessarily went to his head that he's so good-looking and everything because he's still really humble. But I think perhaps, like, he got distracted by whatever, the modeling opportunities, the fashion opportunities. And in this day and age with how physical the game is and how good everyone else is, um, I think despite how much talent you may have, um, if you don't put in the hard work, um, it's not going to pay off. And my, my second thought about him is... I, I just sort of like I've gone back and forth on this, but I don't think um, like the one handed backhand is going to make the renaissance and comeback that I thought it would. I just don't think in today's game it's reliable enough. I think it causes you to be on defense too much of the time. And like I don't see like prolonged greatness anymore from a one handed backhand player. Curious for your thoughts. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the one-handed backhand has been dying for a while now. I mean, it's a slow death, but it's happening, right? I mean, the, the game, as you mentioned, I agree, the game has definitely gotten more physical. That's undeniable. And as it gets more physical and the velocity and the speeds go up, just having that extra hand for stability is just going to make a big difference there. It's funny because on the other hand, I actually think in the women's game, being a one-hander would be an advantage because I think that the women's game, there's a lot of craftiness that's sort of like lacking. And that's what we've seen like Ash Barty be so successful and, you know, everything like that. So I actually think like if there was like a Justine Anna Hardan, like back in the day, sort of esque player with that sort of variety, they would find a lot of success in the tour today. Um, but um, to get back to Gregor, I largely agree with everything you've said. Um, obviously, that story is like in new, like new information to me. Like, so my initial take from that is that like it sounds like Stefano Sitsipas, where it's just somebody who like clearly has a lot of interests and varied interests outside of tennis that just become a priority as they become famous and they realize like, Oh yeah, if I'm like top 10 in the world, I could live a pretty sweet life. And like Grigor Dimitrov, like has won a masters 1000. He has won an ATP finals, which I also completely forgot about, but like he won the 2017 ATP finals over David Goffin, who had that on their bingo card. Like, you know, he he is somebody that I think history will probably remember him kinder than potentially we do right now. But, um, yeah, I think he's just a super interesting player. I mean, I, I'm curious to see how he sort of continues to age because he's, I don't even know how old he is. He's got to be, like, early 30s at this point. Yeah, 32. Um like his serve is great. So his serve should help him out. And that's how he's able to get to a masters 1000 like Paris, you know, uh, the way that he did and have some great wins, I might add. But, um, I don't know if he's ever like, I think he's already peaked number three in the world, ATP finals champion, you know, the whole thing. Like, I don't really know if it gets much higher than that, but I just wanted to shout him out because I think it's a great run and you know, it's pretty awesome. But I, I, you know, I agree with you. I, I think it's clear, like, he's a guy that has other interests. Yeah, but I still love you, Grigor. Shout out to Grigor. I do, too. He's an awesome guy. Like, from everything I've heard, he's an awesome guy. Um, Even when I was a ball person, like, I remember people really, really liking him and him being super nice. Um, The next thing I wanted us to talk about, the shocker of Paris was not Novak winning. That was easy and anticipated. The shocker was Carlos Alcaraz getting bounced in his first match. And I think that it has just raised a lot of questions um, from people across the tennis world about how well Carlos's body is going to hold up. And I think that those questions have always been there. And it's something that Marcus and I have spoken about on this podcast. And I've even spoken about it with you in like text chats like, I think it's something we've always wondered because of what happened with Rafael Nadal's body being so like in and out and in and out. But what should we be expecting from Carlos Alcaraz? Is this like the start of how the rest of his career is going to look like with 
you know, constantly being injured and something always seeming to go wrong? Or are you just kind of like chalking this up to fatigue? Nothing to worry about. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I think there are some concerns that he might be playing an overly physical style and not like taking the appropriate care of his body. And I think that has really prevented Rafa from winning many, many Grand Slams and is really like a, a big reason why Novak has the, has all the records. But um, I, I do think he's a really humble guy with a great team. So I feel like that's definitely on their mind. They're working on it. Uh, we saw them improve after the French open, uh, you know, fix the cramping issue there for him to win Wimbledon, although it sort of came back again in Cincinnati. So maybe they didn't fully fix it. But um, one thing, the one thing I've been saying from the beginning about Carlos Alcaraz, the one I, I think weakness or shortcoming in his game that I think really uh, trickles down into all of these other after effects is like the lack of a powerful or, or, or the lack of a first serve that can consistently get him free points. I think it, there are two reasons for it. One, I think he's just short. I think he says he's six foot, but I believe he's like 5'10", 5'11". So naturally, you just can't get as much power. But I'm not, I'm not a technique expert, but looking at the way he serves, I feel like it's not the optimal way to get the most momentum. I, I feel like there is a lot of room for improvement. And if he could, if he could get more free points, he can get away with playing a less, less physical style, uh, get away with like, you know, doing what Novak does of being able to sort of like conserve energy, throw some games, even throw a set, knowing like you can get those easy free points uh, on the first serve. Yeah, I, I agree with all of your your points again. Um, as you could all see, this is why I like talking with Arabelle instead of Marcus. Um, <laughs> I think. I completely agree with you about the serve. I mean, I've said it on this podcast too. Carlos Alcaraz's career is going to be determined by his first serve to me. I think that his first serve, if he's able to really get a lot of free points on it, um, everything else is there. It's so obviously there. And it's so odd with his like height too, because normally with like the height issue that he has, not being quite as tall, uh, the main problem that you would have is that you can't get as big of a kick serve because you just don't have the wingspan and like the, quite honestly, the like body contortion to be able to kick it as much as somebody who's taller, like so easily, right? Like that's why like John Isner can hit like a 120 mile an hour kick serve, like, and it's unbelievable, right? But Carlos is just super strong. Like his biceps are jacked. He makes like Rafa Nadal look like a skinny kid. Like he is absolutely ripped. And to your point about his service motion, it's not smooth. It is not optimal. Like there's a hitch in it. His arm kind of just like stays up like this for a second. And then he just like powers through the ball. And that is not obviously that's not optimal. Right. So he has to put a lot of effort into all of his shots, especially that serve. And that is sort of like my hesitate. Like, again, I just want to point out, like I am nitpicking upon nitpicking here. Right. Carlos Alcaraz is an unbelievable tennis player whose first serve is still probably like right around. Actually, I know it is right around tour average in terms of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So like, this is just nitpicking. Um, and like, 
it reminds me of an episode we did a few months ago, almost close to a year ago now, with Pete, where he said, like, I think that um, Yannick Sinner has a higher potential than Carlos Alcaraz. And the reason for that being that Yannick Sinner, like, everything just comes so much easier for him. Like, all of his shots are just so much easier because he has, like, beautiful form and long levers and all of these things going in his favor. And Novak, same kind of thing. Like, Novak has extremely, like, like the textbook perfect backhand. Like, it is unbelievable. So that has always just come so easily to him. His balance, like, is off the charts. It comes so easily to him. Having that power game that Alcaraz does, I worry if this is going to be, like, a consistent thing that by September, his body is just shot every single year. Yeah, that would that would be a shame. And for the viewers out there, like the only reason we're we're nitpicking, so to speak, is because we think Alcaraz has such a high ceiling to do these incredible things. Um, and I, I, we've seen with the careers of Rafa and with with Novak that even despite having like uh, accomplished so much, they were able to unlock a next level. And a big part of it for both of them was the first serve. I, I think what he needs is it's not more, maybe not more power even on the first serve. It seems like he can get the power, but just like accuracy, being able to hit a sweet down the line like Novak does on, you know, add out to save break point or, you know, a, a, a great angle, pull the person off the court. I think if he can do that, it can help a lot with this, uh, this physical issue. Yeah, I, I think if he particularly focuses on just getting his first serve percentage, like the percentage in as high as possible, like even if he sacrifices a few MPHs to do that, I think you take that trade off in a case like his. He just needs easy points. He just needs a little bit more easy points. It, it, he works so hard on some of these points that it's all about just body conservation with him. But um <clears throat> The next and final topic I have for us, Arabelle, is the ATP finals. So I'm going to save a lot of my opinions in terms of predictions and all of that for when Marcus decides to return from South America and his little, you know, journey around the world that he's currently going on. (laughs) Um, But while we have you, I wanted to get your opinion. Obviously, we haven't seen the draws. We haven't seen anything like that. But even if you could just give sort of a rough idea of, you know, who you're watching out for, who you think the surface is going to be benefiting the most, um, anything like that. Um, I would be curious to hear. Uh, uh, for sure. So, I mean, for those who, who don't know, the ATP finals is the, the final event of the ATP tour season and only the top eight players as measured basically after the Paris Masters get to play. So what's really cool about it is, A, it's only the top eight players, and B, it's a round-robin format. So you get a ton of matches, and each match is literally a blockbuster match, top eight versus top eight. Um, it is played on an indoor hard court, so uh, you know Djokovic, not surprisingly, has had tremendous success believe he holds the record tied with Federer and if he can win again will break the record uh, for most ATP finals um, 
we'll quickly rattle off who's in it. It's Djokovic, Medvedev, Alcaraz, Rublev, Sinner, Rune, Tsitsipas, Zverev. Zverev has won it before. Medvedev has won it before. Djokovic has won it. Tsitsipas has won it. And uh, Alcaraz, believe it or not, has never even competed because he was injured last year. That's right. Continuing that fact pattern that uh, I just said, by September, his body is cooked. And Nadal has never, to your point, Nadal has never won the ATP finals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and speaking of Nadal and never winning the ATP finals, curious to hear your opinion on this. Stefano Tsitsipas recently just said that winning the ATP finals is a bigger accomplishment than winning a Grand Slam. Real shocker coming from the person who has never actually won a Grand Slam. However, Marcus and I speak about this all the time, that we view the ATP finals as a very important tournament. Not quite a Grand Slam, but like definitely just below it. Um, Where does it stack up for you in terms of career accomplishments? Um, specifically like, you know, I'm not asking you to answer who the greatest tennis player of all time is right now, but like when you think about like Roger, Rafa and Novak is the fact that Rafa doesn't, has has never won this tournament. Like, is that a ding for you? I, I don't think it's a ding for me. I still think, um, the grand slam count is, is the way to measure that. Um, you know, it is, it is a week of playing over the, only the top eight players, but at the same time, um, it's only best of three matches. Um, I think best of five is a totally different animal. So I don't think you can count it in the same category as that. And then just the fact that it's like an indoor hard court, I think it does bias, um, the playing style of certain players. And so like, I wouldn't only hone in on, on that tournament as a measure of greatness. Um, but yeah, I do think it's, it's, it's an incredible accomplishment to be able to win it, uh, because like you have to sustain a really high level uh, of taking out all these great players then again, but it's the end of the season. So maybe some of those great players aren't in their top form because they're tired. It's a fun event to watch. I think it's an amazing record to have. I think Djokovic really wants to have the record and it is important in the goat debate, but if, if Nadal ended up with 25 Grand Slams and Djokovic had 24, I wouldn't say, well, the ATP Finals is the tiebreaker. I still think it's the Grand Slams. Uh, yeah, I think that's totally fair. I think that the Finals, to me, for all of the reasons that you just said, is actually why it holds such a high regard for me. Like, the fact that there are no easy matches. Like, this is basically like playing the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam one, two, three, four, five times, right? (laughs) Like, you are going up against a top eight player in the world every single match out there. Um, I think the fact that it is at the end of the season, similar to the U.S. Open and why the U.S. Open, like, as I continue to think about it, is probably the toughest Grand Slam to win and does, for a fact, have the most varied winners of it, even in the big three era. It's because those bodies are tired. Like it is an endurance test and that shouldn't be a ding against it in my book. That should be like a plus for it of like, Hey, that makes this even more impressive that your body held up more than everybody else's. Um, but complete, but I do agree. Like grand slam count is probably still the primary driver. Absolutely. 
Uh, right. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of like what I'm looking forward to, um, I feel like Rune is going to make a whole Garun is going to make a big push. Um, he, he has a really big ego. He wants to win these big titles. And I think sometimes he performs his best in these big moments. He just brought on Boris Becker. He fired uh, Patrick Murataglu, the, the TikTok coach who Frankie hates. So hopefully Boris Becker, you know, less TikTok, more focus. Although I, I will say Holgerun, even though he loves TikTok, he does seem to work very hard. At, um, so we'll, we'll give him that. He's not lazy. Um, and his relationship his, with his yeah. sister, odd. Oh, my God. This is a kid's show, Frankie. We can't get into that right now. <laughs> We'll oh save that for the Instagram DMs. Carry on. Oh, boy. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I'll be looking for Holger Rune. I think Medvedev also always does really well at uh, indoor hardcore tournaments and has had a really great year uh, on the hardcourts. So, um, also Sinner. I don't think Sinner has part- – did Sinner participate last year? I don't think so. So, yes, Sinner has participated, and it's because Matteo Berrettini got injured – what was that? Last year or two years ago, and Sinner was the fill-in. He was the standby. He was like the number eight, play, number nine player in the world. So he played like two matches, um, and famously against Medvedev, like had that crazy match. But um, but yes, Sinner has. This is Sinner's first time actually qualifying off of his ranking. Got it, um, Frankie. I mean, since you are going to do a whole other episode about this, I do want to kind of circle back to one other point. I mean, just on the topic of Djokovic, I think we think he's the favorite to win this. And if he does win this, that's another notch on the history books. But will he ever not be booed by the crowd at at the Paris Masters? (laughs) Um, Listen, I know you can't say it, but I will. The French crowd is just one of the most enigmatic crowds in all of tennis. I mean, they just like pick a villain and hate that guy. And in France, that villain is Novak Djokovic because they love some Rafa Nadal. And, you know, it. he is the primary rival and they're just always going to kind of boo him. Um, and like, I think what you also have to realize about the Paris crowd in particular is that they are looking for more tennis. So like if Novak is winning 6-0, 4-0, like they are rooting for the other guy because they want to stay and continue to watch tennis. And for somebody like Novak, that doesn't really work. <laughs> He's just <laughs> looking for either silence or you're rooting for him. Um, and that's just sort of his shtick. But listen, in the same way that I think that Ben Shelton is at his best when he's super cocky, I have told you a million times, Novak is at his best when he's a villain, when he's going, you know, give it to me from the crowd, like being the underdog. If Novak is doing that, you ain't beating him. I've uh, Good luck is all I would say. I think you're totally right. And I will admit as much as I, it angers me when people, when I feel that people are unfair toward Novak, it is one of my favorite parts about Novak watching him like let mock the crowd and say, boo me more. And then, you know, proceed to win four games in a row and like bagel the next set. So I think that's part of what for me makes Novak entertaining, fun and kind of relatable, honestly. So it is what it is. And I'm here for it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the same, you know, factor that Medvedev has in New York, right? Where it's just like, I love watching him, you know, start riling up the crowd. It's awesome. Like, we want that. We want the crowd interactions. And Novak is good at it. And, you know, there's a difference between, like, Novak, like, going like this and, you know, waving on the crowd. And somebody like Nick Kyrgios, like literally picking on an individual like fan in the crowd and saying like, do you want the racket? Like that's, <laughs> it's just a different, like Nick can just be such a child sometimes not to just take a shot at Kyrgios, but <laughs> I'm kind of taking a shot at Kyrgios. Um, all right, Arabelle. Um, this has been a pleasure. Fantastic as always. Um, we look forward to having you on the year end wrap up. I'm sure we'll bring you on for that. And, um, yes. Um, do you have anything that you want to plug while you're here? Floor is yours. Uh, nothing I want to plug. I mean, you know, praying for good things to happen in, in, in this, in this mad world, but we won't get too much into it. And grateful that, that you and I have tennis as this, uh, amazing outlet. Could not agree more with that. And that is going to do it from us here at Breakpoint Podcast. Uh, And we will catch you guys next time. See ya.